This is Continuum Drag, a weekly podcast revisiting television, sci-fi, fantasy, and everything in between. This week, Super Train. Episodes 4 and 5. There was nothing left. No hope, no money. I might as well have ended it all. Jumped off that bridge right there. Only the bridge wasn't high enough and I'm the last person in the world I want to hurt. My mother always said to me, Jack, if you don't know what to do, don't do anything. And that's exactly what I was doing. Nothing. Welcome to Continuum Drag, the podcast coming to you live from the Polar Express. I'm Luke, here with my co-host Jordan. What's real, Jordan? I thought you were going to have another, um, like, off the rails or something like that, like every review of this show. No, well, but it's because, Jordan, didn't you know? Today's our holiday episode. It's, oh, it's no. the holiday time. I was thinking about this last night. I was like, oh, no, I know there's a Christmas episode coming up, and I'm going to miss it again. And, and once again, I missed it. Before we get started, Jordan, it's, of course, time for our annual host gift exchange. Oh, no. And, of course, so this year, Jordan, look what I got you for Christmas. Oh, that's amazing. It's an Automan t-shirt. It's got Automan on it. He looks great. He's riding his little auto car. Oh, that's really good. I'm going to wear that with my uh, my my uh, Planet of the Apes shirt you got me, I think, last year. And once again, for Christmas this year, I have gotten you nothing because I have forgotten once again. <laughs> we have the, to keep the tradition going. The holiday gift exchange continues <laughs> unabated on Continuum Greg. I... I I always appreciate this big box of nothing from you every year. <laughs> I've gotten you something. One, remember I got you that one time I got you that photo of uh, Greg Evigan? That's true. That's true. I did get a photo of Greg Evigan that year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Autographed. Well, uh, uh, that, that ends our holiday celebrations for the year. Um, so we'll, we'll move on into the episode. <laughs> to the more important things. This week uh, for Super Train, we're going to be joined by a guest... This week, uh, we want to welcome Olav from the Hugo Book Club blog to the podcast. Uh, Olav, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So before we get into this week's episodes, uh, you in particular were someone who was like, I'm very interested in talking about Super Train. Super Train is something I am, I, I, I don't know if you're a big fan of it, but it was something you wanted to talk about. And I'm very curious, having now we've watched a bunch of it, what, what, what draws you to Super Train, Olav? <laughs> About 20 years ago, I went on a quest to watch all of the most notoriously terrible TV shows. So, you know, I got into Cop Rock, I got into Super Train, I watched Kyle Honey, I'm Home, the sitcom about Hitler, (laughs) um, and that exists for some reason. And I became interested in how do these things happen? You know, I don't think you get something truly great like... I don't know, um, uh, the Umbrella Academy, unless you also have the courage to make something truly terrible. Mm. And of all of those terrible shows, the most unambitious, the most banal was Super Train. <laughs> <laughs> I love that review. That that really subs it up. I don't think we need anything else. I don't think we need to do the rest of the episode. <laughs> so... so when, when you look at Supertrain and you look at the history of how Supertrain came to be, um, do, do you know who made the original pitch for the show? No, I don't, actually. It wasn't the producer. It was a guy by the name of Peter Klein, who was an NBC executive who was famous for the philosophy. And he, he actually had this like on his wall, least 
objectionable viewing. He believed <laughs> that people didn't want good TV. He wanted. He thought that audiences wanted the least objectionable thing, something they the could pablum. turn on. The pablum. It, it, it was a very deliberate strategy that um, you know rocketed NBC right up into fourth place. Um, and, and kept it there. Um, so, so when I look at this show, it's an incredibly ambitious show technically. Like the budget is enormous, it, the most expensive show ever made at that point. But uh, storytelling wise, it is entirely lowest common denominator. That's very funny. Yeah, I mean, that's the one thing that's so odd about watching it is that the super trained sets and the actual miniatures and all that stuff is so elaborate and so well done that when it's paired with the writing of the episodes, it's, there's like a cognitive dissonance of just like someone spent so much time and energy and care and then also did the opposite of that. Well, just even think about uh, uh, like the sets. I don't I don't remember if they're in this episode, but in a few of them we've had, you have that shot of people in the lounge like having like drinks or disco dancing, and they actually have an actual purpose-built pool where people are swimming so you can get that shot through the bar into the pool and stuff. And I'm like, that's an expensive set that you've built. But then the scene they'll have is like the worst written thing you've seen on TV. It's not even just that they threw money at the sets. I mean, they got Don Westlake to write and produce that. And the dude's a huge name. Like he he wrote dozens of best-selling uh, mystery novels. He's he's an award-winning author. They've got people behind this, but the direction is to go most possible common denominator. This is, uh, I mean, this is how I felt about uh, Auto Man was it was uh, how, how the episodes felt like, how can I get you one hour closer to death? And uh, I guess that is the uh, that is I guess the concept behind Super Train was the pitch is like how can we get our audiences just a little further down their life? But I do think it's a little bit of indicative of a certain era of television as well, which is the, the I think there's the belief that the concept is enough to get people to watch. That if we have this as an outrageous concept, or it looks as it looks as good as possible in TV Guide in a little blurb, you know that people will go, oh, that's enough, and then they're going to sit down anyways. Like, they're not going to reach for the remote, so don't worry about it. We've got them because they've already sat down. In terms of the concept, what's utterly baffling is this is essentially pitched as the love boat on a train, right? Mm -hmm. But when you think about the concept of people going on a cruise, it's wildly different than people going on a train trip. You know, on a cruise, you're not trying to get to a destination. The whole point is to be on the ship, Right. It's not... It's the journey. It's the journey. So there's more space for narrative to exist. And, like, this train's supposed to go 250 miles an hour, which would get you <laughs> from New York to L.A. in 10 hours. So 10 hours isn't a lot of time for events to occur. Well, it's an interesting point because... What you would think would be built into this concept of the train is that this would almost every episode would have some sort of a version of like a, uh, a time bomb going to go off because there's this this train is going so fast. It's going to make it from Chicago to L.A. or wherever it's going to go. Oh, no, this thing, this bomb has to get diffused or whatever. And there's and there's only so much time because the train's so fast. But now a five episodes in, we haven't had a train going off the tracks or a bomb or anything like that. It's almost every episode's a kidnapping for some reason. It's a kidnapping in some way that doesn't really matter 
And when you break it all down, it doesn't really need to be on a train. I was going to make the same point about kidnappings. Yeah, it's like they think kidnappings are the most interesting thing ever. And it doesn't stop. Like, they don't stop doing kidnapping plots. I'm sorry if that's a spoiler, if you haven't. Oh, no, that's fine. No, it's every episode. They just, they won't stop kidnapping. You're right. It's like, it's, and then it becomes like multiple kidnappings. You're like, okay, guys, we get it. We get it. Kidnapping's happening on trains. I was really thinking when I was watching these ones, I'm just like, the biggest problem with all of these kidnappings is they do the kidnapping when the train leaves the station. Just do the kidnapping as the train arrives. It's much, it's much less uh, room for error. The other thing I notice is, because they've got a rotating cast, you know, this is the era of the anthology television. A lot of these shows did really lean in on a single, like, voiceover narrator on numerous episodes. And so both of these episodes, you've got one person giving you information dumps via a voiceover. Now, the second episode, the, um, I'm sorry, I always bungle this episode title. The, um, the Queen and the Improbable Night. The Queen and the Improbable Night. It buries that narrator under the guise of a dude talking to his his dictaphone. Yes. It's not quite as ham-handed as uh, as the, the first one, yeah. The superstar. But you know, it's still they're introducing a new cast of characters, so they need to get you up to speed quickly. So they have to shoehorn well not even shoehorn they have to lean on this this voiceover well i mean we'll get into it but it is something that like these voiceovers or even just like information dumps are so important in these episodes because the plots themselves and the reasons they're happening end up becoming so convoluted that it requires so much explanation and often more convoluted than required but there's always i've always found there's info dumps where i get so much information about things that i never saw and i was like what I don't understand what happens on this show sometimes. <laughs> I would have had a note if I was working on this show. I would have said, if you guys are having such a problem of needing a narrator to give all this information or needing a, a very like painful scene of someone giving this info dump, how about take the time you take for the four-minute dancing scene and take that <laughs> dancing scene away? And then maybe you can you can you can sprinkle around that information around the episode hey, a little bit. We cleaner, built that you know? disco, man. We gotta use that disco. <laughs> <laughs> but the dancing scene is unobjectionable yeah no one's turning away from that and no one's gonna be upset by that dancing scene. i i can't remember it's this episode and i think it is they cut to the disco and it's just a it's just a shot of a woman dancing and they just push on her face smiling and i'm just like i don't know who that character is but she's having a great time in this disco (laughs) every episode so far five they're five for five episodes there's a there's a disco dance one thing with those disco dancing scenes and with the pool and with the billiards in one episode like there's a complete lack of understanding of what it's like to be on a train. <laughs> they, they assume that a train is identical in every way to a boat. Like you can have a pool on a boat. You can have a disco dance on the boat because it's mostly pretty level and it's moving at like, what, 50 miles an hour on a good day. The train, you know, you go around a curve and the water is going <laughs> off the side. N- no one can dance on that. Olaf, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a correction here. Uh, it's a super train. This isn't a normal train. This is a super train where all bets are off. You know, so let's just throw that out there. No, no, I don't <laughs> no. accept that explanation. Um, can I mention that it has super tracks it's running on, and that it's a two-story train with an elevator? Momentum still exists. Uh, not on a super train. <laughs> 
that's that is the best part of super train is the only piece of science fiction is the train itself it's just like so outrageously science fiction everything that happens on it though the most the most mundane thing that could possibly happen so specific about the size of the train right like it's got wheels that are exactly uh (laughs) i think it's 20 feet apart and the 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 width is 24 feet and it's two stories tall and like they get very technical at times about oh and it was built in exactly 22 months Mm -hmm. oh i know that's my favorite part (laughs) it just feels like the most impossible time frame but here it is super train's ready to go well you need to have all those specifications of the size because when you don't want the viewer watching going wait a minute they have a whole (laughs) disco hall how big are these walls how far is this track they need to have a proper disco dance floor, you know? Also, it's only a 10-hour trip. Like, why do you need a disco? Like, people are worried that they're not going to disco dance for a full 10 hours? It's the it's the late 70s, early 80s. It's There's nothing else to do. It's that or roller skating, and there's no room for that. Oh, there should have been a roller rink on Super It would have been better. Huge mistake. I'm surprised that there wasn't. <laughs> Well, we'll, have, we'll we'll get into the episode soon, and we'll have some time at the end to like unpack anything we missed. But Jordan, I think you have a little game for us to play this week. I do. It's a very quick little game. It's only 10 questions, and what it is, it's called Test Your Train Knowledge. <laughs> and what it is, is it's just some uh, movies and books and things that are all based around trains. It's all you really need to do. And I just want to see who would win between the two of you. It's only 10 questions. So what I'll do is I'll give the question, and... Uh, I'll just add in a buzzer sound later. If you just say buzz, you get in. <laughs> you can try You can try answering the question. If you get it wrong, the next person can uh, attempt to make the answer, and then we'll go and we'll see what the score is. Let's do it. Okay, so question the first. This 1973 thriller novel was made into a 1974 movie starring Walter Matthau and Robert Shaw. And uh, was also rebade in 2009, starring Denzel Washington and John Travolta. Luke? Taking of Panham, one, two, three. Uh, Luke, you've got it. Yes. That's one for Luke. All right. Question two. This 2005 movie, Derailed, starred which Friends alumni? <laughs> Derailed? I... Derailed. Starring... Uh, yep. Yeah, Olav? Matt LeBlanc? Incorrect. Luke? <laughs> Uh, uh, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say Phoebe. <laughs> Ooh, also incorrect. Sorry, everyone. It was Jennifer Aniston starring uh, against Clive Owen in the movie Derailed. Oof. Obviously, everyone is a big fan of that. There's movie. a there's an A list cast in a movie I've never heard. Of. <laughs> yeah. All right. Question three. So it's one nothing still. In planes, trains, and automobiles, the train portion of the trip leaves from which U.S. city? They're going home for Thanksgiving. I'm gonna I'm gonna buzz and say uh, Detroit. Ooh, no, it's not Detroit. I'll give I'll give you a hint. Olav, it's from for you. It's a city that in Super Train they often go to. Chicago. There you go. We're uh, one one. Of course. How did I not know Chicago's such a train hub? I didn't I didn't know anything about the movie. I just remember Super Train. <laughs> <laughs> so question four. Uh, question four or five, something like that. Uh, who wrote the 2016 psychological thriller The Girl on the Train? I don't know her name. Uh, <laughs> here's what I want to say, which is also wrong. Uh, the man who wrote uh, The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nuts, which is already wrong because that's not nothing about that's right. 
Stieg Larsson? No. Uh, all right. Well, no one gets it. It's Paula Hawkins who wrote that book. Bad train knowledge. Yeah. All right. Next question. It's still 1-1. One, one. What is the name of the train-centric Wes Anderson 2007 movie that starred Owen Wilson? The Darjeeling yep. Limited. There we go. 2-1. I would have got it wrong. <laughs> this is a fun one. This was really just for me. Which Beatle was a narrator on the children's TV show Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends? Yep. Ringo Starr. You got it. 3-1. Oh. What 2013 movie that takes place on a futuristic train was also remade into a 2020 TV series? Snowpiercer. Yep. I knew yep. that one. 4-1. <laughs> what was the name of the train in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood that passes by the fictional neighborhood of make-believe to deliver messages to the residents of King Friday's Castle? The name of the, the name of the train. I don't know the answer to this one. That's the problem. Uh, Thomas. Nope. Love. Sorry, no clue. It's the neighborhood trolley, everyone. <laughs> a trolley a train yeah all right so this uh which train movie was nominated for two acting oscars was it 1985's runaway and the people would be john voight and eric roberts 1976's no the cassandra crossing with sophia loren and richard harris or 1995's money train with woody harrelson and wesley snipes <laughs> i'm gonna buzz and say the middle one just because those are the only actors who would ever win an oscar sophia loren and richard harris yeah that's the one Incorrect. Okay. I'm going to say Money Train. Uh, it was not Money Train. Unfortunately, guys, both John Voight and Eric Roberts were nominated for Oscars for Runaway Train. Who would have thought? That sounds impossible to me, but I guess so. It's true. All right. And this is the last one. And it's really, I call this just for Canadians. What was the name of the 2003 to 2005 Canadian improvised soap opera that took place entirely on a railway car of a go train? And the train was... it went across the Lakeshore West line running from Toronto to Burlington. What was the name of the TV show? Now, Olaf, let me ask you, where are you from in, uh, in Canada originally? Where, where have you lived the most? Uh, Alberta the whole time. Yeah. I gr- also grew up in Alberta. And I, when I moved to Ontario a few years ago, I ha- still, I only had heard about this sitcom or this, this show, this improvised show, like a year and a half ago, which apparently was a huge deal in Ontario, but made no impact in Alberta. And I still don't know the name of it. So I can't answer this question. Mm. No one knows what it is, and the, the show name was Train 48, and I know you say it made a big impact. It did not make a big impact, unless it was an impact of making fun of that show. <laughs> I think I heard Train of it. 48. Yeah, I, it's something I heard about very recently, too. I'm like, I, this thing on a train? I've never heard of this. Yeah. Since you raise Snowpiercer as a subject, mm-hmm. I'd just like to uh, mention... I derived more enjoyment out of Super Train once I decided in my head that it was a prequel to Snowpiercer. <laughs> right. <laughs> that is very good. That is very good. Before things got all dystopian. Yeah, and then you can just know that all of those unlikable characters that you're being forced to watch, they're probably dead. <laughs> <laughs> they, they all end up having... What was the, the thing? In the, they're all like the mechanism. They're like running the engine themselves physically. They're all like the the... The, the poor little urchins that are running the engine. Well, that'll be that. Hopefully Hogarth is down there because maybe we'll get into the first episode here. Here's a good transition. I'm killing this transition. Oh, yeah. Let's who won it. that? Who won that, by the way? Olaf did it. He killed it. I think it was four to one. Damn it. Train knowledge fail. Well, you guys, here's the end to be summary for episode four. Superstar. No summary available. <laughs> There's no summaries. I noticed um, I should say this. The IMDb for super train is uh rife with errors it's sparse and of all the shows we've watched i'm shocked to see how unloved and untended these super train episode episodes are individually yeah 
people do not love them. But this this episode, episode four, it's all about a uh, man who calls himself, quote, the boy genius of Hollywood, producer Jack Hogarth, who I don't know if you guys looked into his IMDb, but I did. and I was blown away. This man is played by uh, Dennis Duggan, mm-hmm. who went on to become the director of many Adam Sandler films, uh, such as Happy Gilmore, Grown Ups, Jack and Jill. He even directed Problem Child at some point. This man had a illustrious directing career after his acting career. I think he made the right decision. I, I bet you he's made a lot more money. <laughs> yeah. I'm just shocked by that knowledge. I, I, that's, a, that's a small snippet. He's directed probably half of Adam Sandler's films. It's, it's crazy to imagine. And his character will give us, I think, as we've talked about the idea of narration on this show, I think this is the first like full-on hard narration. Or if it's not, it is certainly the most obnoxious because it's the hardest to ignore. And now, now, let me say this, and maybe this is a, uh, an answer that Olaf will have. The sense I got, and I don't know if the original script, I think what they were really kind of hoping for was a sort of somewhat ironic twist on your kind of um, like detective novel, like that sort of maybe o- o- kind of over the top, unironic telling of a story, like a, a Philip Marlowe sort of thing. But then they were like, what if we kind of made it? with a dweeb and it was kind of funnier i just i didn't know what they were doing with the narration because at first i was like oh they're gonna go for like that kind of film noir sort of thing but it wasn't that at all i think that's what they were aiming for i i actually don't know much about the production of this episode in particular i know uh westlake was involved in the writing still at that point although he slowly faded into the background as they reworked the show repeatedly so this is still the westlake era of Hmm. um of the show and i can't think of any of his novels where that would be uh coming from it i think it's just ham-handed incompetence it's just it's just hokey right like it's it's one of these things like as soon as the narration started you're like oh this is gonna be really bad and the spoiler it's really bad yeah i mean hogarth essentially is the his concept is he's getting he's a former great producer who's now being evicted from his studio he's taken a bunch of money from some sort of mob boss to like make his next film a film that he says is called the lady was a cop (laughs) i would have read that book I'd rather read that book than watch this episode. The lady was a cop. I'm like, yeah, I'm in. And he's and, trying to talk her out of doing Shakespeare's Anthony and Cleopatra. Yes. <laughs> he, he is. He basically promised his mob boss that he'd get his, I guess his ex-wife who's become a big Hollywood star to star in his film. And that's how he got the money. But he's essentially, from what I can tell, he's taken a large investment from this man, spent all the money already. And now the goons are there to kill him for spending the money. This, of course, uh, involves him having to escape the goons by leaping out a window and uh, racing to Super Train to try to talk to his wife, who's going to get on that, like, try to beg her to do this show. Um, I will note, though, these two these two goons, um, Robert and Clyde, I believe they're called, if there was a highlight to this episode, I believe it is it is these two men who play very, like, one's a very, like, stern-faced, craggy man, and the other's kind of like a more rotund, like, goon. Both very big heavies, but they're doing this weird, like comedy duo thing that is like the only part of this episode that's working for me is these like two psychopaths hanging out doesn't it feel like it's taking place in a different universe like i got that they were doing a thing but it felt like there was two shows happening here like there's maybe it's just because i've seen previous episodes of of super train but it was like okay there's going to be some sort of thriller aspect but then you have these guys doing like stooges material and i didn't understand what i i was like is this what the show is is this what i is this what i'm i'm watching 
the narrative through line of this episode doesn't work, fundamentally doesn't work, because Hogarth, or Hogarth, he doesn't get on the train. He tries to get on the train. That's what's so crazy. And is rebuffed. And he's trying to get on the train to avoid his would-be kidnappers, killers, whatever. They get on the train. He doesn't. And then he randomly falls on the train. That was the weirdest thing because we've seen a couple episodes so far where they have to have a, a you know uh, an interesting way to get the protagonist onto the train. But this was the one that was like the most childlike or the most like something you'd see on a cartoon where like, it just happens that the guys are chasing him and he falls off a bridge just at that exact second where the train he needed to be on was passing by that he fell on and was able to get it. And it's just like, uh, okay. And that happens like 30 seconds into the episode. It also strikes me that this is actually the fifth episode in production order. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. This one was, I think, in, yeah, this is right when they started to seriously retool the show. So th- this is them attempting to find a new voice. That makes sense because this is more of like a broad comedy than the previous episodes have been. Very much so. They don't have a laugh track yet, um, which they will later. <laughs> Something to look forward to. <laughs> um, but this is them trying to figure out what in the show works. And if people are already laughing at it, might as well be in on the joke, I think, is the theory. Mm. It's like the old, uh, um, do you remember uh, Striptease, the movie in the late 90s with uh, Demi Moore, which was supposed to be cashing in on that sort of like, uh, I think it was supposed to be like a showgirls or like sort of erotic thriller thing. And when they did the test screenings, people were laughing because it was so bad. And then they recut it and repackaged it and sold it as a like erotic comedy. And it was like, no, no, we're not laughing because it's, intentionally funny everyone's <laughs> laughing because it's bad but they like tried going with it right i mean you might as well give it a shot i suppose and i mean yeah. it is interesting to see super train make a shift this way i don't think i don't think they're doing this better than they were doing drama but it's it's an interesting idea and like it is crazy he falls on the train he gets on somehow the goons are already there because they knew he was going to the train because they overheard him on the phone and once he's there they introduce a new character like it feels so random he like has to, he immediately bumps into the goons because if you're on super train, you can't help but bump into the people. Like on this huge train, you're perpetually bumping into the people you're trying to hide from. He hides in an an elderly woman's room. This uh, what's her, what is her name here? Agatha. Agatha, who's played who, by Sil- Sylvia Sidney, and I don't know if you guys know Sylvia Sidney, but she's been making television. If you look at her credits since the 1920s. She made from the 1920s to like the early 90s, and she just was one of those people like nothing that terribly memorable. I think if anyone might remember her, she played in Beetlejuice. If you remember when the two Alec Baldwin and uh, Gina Davis died and the, the smoking lady who was like kind of giving them the, the how to live in your how to live as a ghost, the old lady, that was her. Um, but she's been making movies for made movies for like 90 years. Like it was crazy. I mean, she's what she's she's like. I didn't hate her on the show, but her her inclusion of her character felt very random. Like they team up to help Hogarth basically avoid the goons and get to his ex wife uh, Tammy to pitch her this movie, basically. And the thing is, I don't know why they need to team up. There are very little obstacles for Hogarth. He seems to be able to get to Tammy relatively easily. Like the first time. Agatha knocks on the door of Tammy's compartment, goes inside, and then just, like, invites Hogarth in to talk to her. And and I should say, I don't know if we did properly mention that 
the reason he wants to get to his ex-wife is he as i think you mentioned earlier luke he sort of has already promised these people that have given him money that he can get his ex-wife but his ex-wife knows nothing about it he sort of has made this deal assuming she's going to be able to do this movie but she has already made other plans and they have some sort of conflict i think they're exes now at this point and so they have a maybe odd relationship so she maybe doesn't want to give him a favor but you can't really tell that from any subtext that you see in this because because it's all jokey to me th- there is a point in the 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 episode where where he's trying to get back together with her and so he needs to discredit her manager slash new slash boyfriend, boyfriend. And, slash ex hairdresser and he hires these child pickpockets to pretend to be the children of the manager in order to discredit him and it's like then he's discovered and to me if my partner or ex-partner did that kind of shit that manipulative lying shit it would be like dude you're radioactive at this point i don't want to be manipulated and lied to. nah he's he's just a scam that's just what's crazy about this character because we, we meet this boyfriend manager type who for the rest of the episode is going to be painted by hogarth as some sort of like no talent hack who's exploiting her but throughout this, the entire episode is about how Hogarth is trying to scam her into doing this movie that he spent a bunch of mobsters. But like Hogarth is nothing but a con artist that we can see. And like he'll a start try to convince her to do it. She'll say her boyfriend will say, no, I'm her manager and I have all like I have signing authority in what she does. Then he will the next time he tries to get her to do it. He does the Mrs. Doubtfire gambit. <laughs> that's right that's right he dresses up that's the first time we've seen that in the show he dresses up as a woman to convince it's like this whole weird comedy thing where he has to get the guy to spill food on her so she's upset so that he can get her alone and it's just like I, it, there's no reason for it other than wouldn't it be hilarious if a guy dressed up like an old lady it's kind of awful how little agency the the female character has uh, the, the, the the actress whose name is eludes me at this moment uh, Tammy, I believe. Tammy. It is the case. Like, she is basically beholden to her new manager boyfriend who has the right to sign her contracts. And now she's got her ex chasing her down, trying to trick her. Like, they do. My favorite part of the Mrs. Doubtfire gambit is they spill spaghetti on the boyfriend to get him to leave. And the boyfriend doesn't know. He just thinks that old lady spilled spaghetti on him. And he stands up and, like, goes to punch her in the face. And, like, only stops himself slightly. And then it cuts away, and the two goons who are hunting Hogarth are sitting there watching it like it's dinner theater. And one of them's just like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. I can't wait to watch this man punch this old woman. <laughs> like, he's so excited to be watching. And I'm just like, this. these two goons are my favorite part. Um, so this has how, how Hogarth gets her in private, because he thinks she thinks he's an old lady. Then he pulls all his makeup off, and it's like, it's me, your ex-husband. I need you to make this movie before I'm murdered, because I lied about you being in it and spent all the money of a mobster and she's just like you seem toxic but you're so lovable how do i stay with you well i think it does have a little bit of that that something that we've mentioned uh, uh multiple times through watching um a lot of tv shows and, and especially of this kind of era this late 70s early 80s era which is simply because the character is our protagonist and it's usually a white heterosexual male you just are as an audience are assumed to like him regardless of any actions or anything they show as a person you were just the viewer supposed to like this person because of how they look and here's it's another another instance of we see nothing in the show other than jack being a horrible manipulative 
lying, distrustful person. But as a viewer, you're supposed to go, eh, he's kind of fun, though, because he just is. And it's a real disservice to the show that there's nothing more interesting about him. And so it's hard as a viewer. I think it would have been hard even at the time to to be invested in him at all or his journey. So you're just like, who cares? Who cares if he gets his money? He's a jerk. I mean, he he's, he's made his bed for sure. I mean, the the evil boyfriend in the in the episode, he like literally articulates what's wrong, like the scams this man is pulling. And he's supposed to be the bad guy. But I'm, always, I'm, I'm like, this guy's right. Like the bad guy is right about the hero, 100%. Interior narratives like uh, done as a voiceover are a great opportunity for a director to give interiority to a character. This is, should be the point where, okay, you've put the viewer inside the head of this guy. They should find something to like in there. But almost like a joke, they have used every uh, monologue to show what a venal jerk this guy is. <laughs> yes. Like, like, yeah, he'll be like, he'll be doing some trick and then the voiceover will be like, well, I tried screwing her over, but it didn't work. It's like, no, no, that could have been a great chance for him to say, why do I keep doing these things? I have the right intentions and I really just want to show her that I love her, but instead it comes out in this ham-fisted way. And then as a viewer, you could be like, oh, well, okay, there's something, there's some three-dimensionality to this character. But no, he's a jerk on the outside. He's a jerk on the inside. Jerk on the inside. Yeah. It's it's funny because we've been talking about like he basically does these like very broad gambits to get attempt to get her to agree to this movie or and or fall in love with him. I was just going to say uh, the only thing I want to mention is that this whole plot of he needs to get his ex-wife to do this movie because there's the mob are, are chasing him it does not need to take place on a train. Oh, there's, there's there's no point to it being on a train at all. It could be anywhere. It could be in an office. It doesn't matter. But they've just put it on a train and it just it's wildly infuriating that they have this cool concept and they just don't know what to do with it at all. And it, anyway, sorry, uh, go on. The one time where the train is even vaguely relevant is when they open up the side door to lean him out and like threaten him with throwing him off the side of the train. It's true. And we've seen that in the pilot. <laughs> and the thing is that if a train was moving at 250 miles an hour, <laughs> the amount of wind and noise would not permit conversation. Olaf, it's a super train. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just wanted to talk quickly about these goons. Because the idea is like, as with most super train episodes, someone is pursuing you on the train. And even this episode, this is undercut because the goons end up catching the, the hero quite early on in the process. And even when the heroes do, the hero's caught, the hero turns to the goons and says, hey, well, listen, I still have like 12 hours before we get to L.A. Why don't we team up and you guys can help me try to convince my ex-wife to do this movie? And the goons are like, OK, we'll give you to, we'll, we'll we'll work with you for 12 hours. And in the end, he fails every single time. So the goons are just like, OK, well, now let's throw you off the train instead. Like, there's no pressure from these goons, really. They're not even that, like, threatening. Well, they're not invested. It's just a gig for them. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So in the end, he's he's dragged off to get killed, and only Agatha, the elderly passenger, she runs off to tell Tammy that he's going to get killed by the goons. And even after all this toxic behavior, Tammy's like, well, I better still go with you, Agatha, and try to save him. And, and so everything that's happened amounts to not, like, it is just Agatha and Tammy showing up as as Hogarth is begging the goons to let him write a few letters before they murder him. 
it is almost as if there's like a whiteboard in a room and they have certain things that need to get added into every episode. They're like, well, you need the mob. You need the mob as the pressure. That has to be something that's going to give this episode momentum, but it's not needed. Or it's like every episode, like, well, you're going to have to have an old lady they bump into. Or it's like these weird things that don't service the story at all, but they seem to keep coming back in every episode. I'd like to point out just how flat the acting is in this episode. Like, almost every character seems to be phoning it in, and it's such a contrast to the subsequent episode. Like, I don't even know the name of the act. I can't recall the name of the actor who plays Hogarth, but he's just kind of bland, mealy-mouthed. Like, can you think of a, a notable performance in this episode? It, for me, it was <clears throat> it was mostly just the goons because they and they, even they weren't that deep. They were still like just playing heavies, but they just got some jokes because it's such a broad comedy. But otherwise, ev- like everyone is blank in this. The, Tammy being unfortunately the like worst offender is like you feel nothing for Tammy. She is an empty vessel. Well, as you said, Olaf, they've given her nothing to work with. Like she's literally she she could have just been a lamp. She could have been an object that he needed to get for his movie. It would have made as much sense because she barely has any dialogue. When she has dialogue, it's just to react to men pushing her around in different rooms. And then at the end, she's like, I think I'm in love with you for reasons. And it's just like, oh, what a terrible, terrible role. And it's interesting that we did these two episodes together because it feels like they are the same plot effectively. (laughs) Absolutely. And... Queen and the Improbable Night, if you notice on IMDb, it is the best-reviewed single episode of this series. It is the high point of Super Train. And it's so similar, but it's carried by a, a better narration monologue, way better. Some genuine chemistry between Paul Sand and uh, Mary Louise Weller. You know, those two on screen there's something going on there they've got good banter i actually liked the protagonists (laughs) yeah in this episode there's there's truly none of that happening like the and the episode wraps up so perfunctorily too like agatha and tammy arrive to save hogarth from the goons bizarrely in the in, in what is like the craziest thing is both this elderly lady and this actress beat up the goons they're they're able to both individually overcome a goon on their own one of the goons almost falls off the train, and of course it's it's a, it's a light comedy. They're able to save the goon, pull him up, and then the goon is so so happy to have had his life saved, he calls the entire contract off, and because Tammy's also saying, I'll do the movie, they're like, well, let's all go get drinks together. And we cut to the end, and you see Hogarth and Tammy leaving together, and there's a monologue where Hogarth's like, everything worked out great for me. Not only are we getting married, I'm also now... I've also signed her to a lifetime contract. Like he has, he, it's like it's like insane. Like to like it finished it off was just like I've now enslaved this woman. What a great ending for me! And I was just like, what is happening in this show? And I'm gonna say something, and it's gonna feel like I'm giving it more credit than it's due. But I felt like maybe in an early version of this script, they thought they were making some sort of like homage to like a Shakespearean comedy with. Um, having it end on a wedding, even though it doesn't really end on a wedding. And I thought that only because they mentioned the the other Shakespeare play. And I thought, are they trying to do something clever here and just falling flat? But I think maybe I'm even even giving the connection is maybe giving it more thought than they gave this script. 
I think I think you I think it's true. You may be reading it too, but but who knows? Maybe somewhere some early draft, some writers was like, it's going to be very Shakespearean. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It, but this like this is like one of the most insane episodes of that show I've watched. Like it, I think. Olaf, I think to your point, maybe it's because of the retool and the attempt to turn it into like a very broad comedy suddenly. It is a little whiplashy. Uh, it feels very different from the previous episodes while still being the same in that there's like primarily built around a poorly thought out crime. But at least this time, because it's a comedy, it matters less. Yeah, I, I was I just double checked this and this is the first episode to have been made after they had started airing the show so it's it's mm. when they're starting to get oh. feedback as to how much people don't like it well i have <laughs> to say like i have a note at the end and like this was not a good show but the drop in quality to this episode is fairly shocking for a already like middling show at best to have gotten this bad like this episode is putrid it is a terrible by any any measure as something on television this is a bad episode of television and it's sort of shocking i don't know if i'm trying to think of another show we've watched luke where there's such a dramatic shift of it's almost the equivalent of like they cut all the budget but you know that's not what it is it's just that it's this direction shift and it's it is it's that whiplash it's terrible to see so have you watched the rest of the episodes yet we're no we are we are up to five and this is your first time watching super train absolutely mm-hmm. Oh man, I cannot wait to hear the later episodes of this run. I don't think we're going to get there. <laughs> I don't think we're going to get there. You are in for a, I'm going to say, treat. <laughs> well, let's 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 talk about episode five then. I'll, I'll give us the summary and we can kind of go through it since it's it's an identi- it's almost a near identical plot just with like a dramatic versus comic tone. Um, here's the IMDb summary for episode five: The Queen and the Improbable Knight. Paul Sand guest stars as a young reporter who falls for a mysterious passenger. He is unaware that she is a crown princess who is being stalked by two assassins with a mission to see that she does not get off the train alive. Which, not also not their mission, but that's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah, like this time it's kind of, it, it is almost identical other than the the passengers don't know each other. There's a bit more of a meet-cute in that this uh, travel reporter, Barney Sweet, Played by guest star Paul Sand, who I did not recognize even when I looked him up. I was just like, I don't know why Paul Sand's a big get, but I guess he is. I didn't know either. <laughs> He's there to write about the Space Age Super Train. And, of course, as soon as the episode starts, it wouldn't be an episode of Super Train unless Goon showed up with a plan to do something. And in and this time, it's... To kidnap. Goon. They always got to kidnap. They're, they're there to kidnap. And here's the plot. And I wrote it all down here. Is they're there to kidnap the uh, crown princess of Montenegro... Because apparently at some point in the past, the normal royalty has been usurped and seemingly killed in Montenegro and how it has been taken over by perhaps a military government, perhaps a democratic government, unclear. And essentially, it's come to light there's still a living princess somewhere. The prime minister is coming from Montenegro to give that princess a test in Denver 
to determine whether she is the true princess of Montenegro, <laughs> which would potentially see the return of the monarchy to the country. I, I, I couldn't quite track this whole thing. I'm just like, but the goons are there to the plan is not to kill her, but to kidnap her for a few minutes while they replace her with a fake princess who will fail the test and hence delegitimize the monarchy in the eyes of the people. This is the plot. Luke, that's exactly what the plot is. That and, and what I love about that is for a show that is a silly love boat ripoff that takes place on a super train, it is the most convoluted setup to get to an episode that is going to result in the stupidest, laziest writing you've seen. And for instead of just going... I don't know. Let's just do an episode where there's a mute cute and like an adventure happens because we all know this is stupid. Let's le- at least make it fun. They're like, no, you need to know the political infighting of uh, Eastern Europe country. And it's just like, guys, this is so, so over the top for what you need. But all right, sure. Let's do it. You know, let the kidnappings begin. Yeah, it is very much the, the meat cute itself is, I think, in tone with this era of TV is. Uh, Barney's very nebbish and like squirrely and he bumps into this princess as they're both going to like get on the get maybe get on the super train elevator and what I like is she's she turns around and she's just like I saw you undressing me with your eyes I was into it <laughs> I was just like oh okay I'm yeah like, what I love also it, you mentioned it's like no offense to Paul Sands but he's not a good looking guy he's not charming he's not interesting and he was acting creepy to her she is a let's she's just a like beautiful tv woman who for some reason because you have a just men writing this episode they're like she's interested in it yeah this this beautiful woman is very interested in creepy behavior i don't i don't i i want to give a little bit of of uh credit to 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 sand i thought he was kind of charming in a nebbish kind of way yeah like he's got that stuttering like he's I thought the the chemistry between them was actually there, especially when they started having conversation. I didn't hate Paul Sand as an actor either. I I, I felt like the meat cute needed a rework only, and that like she goes into and I, we described it very quickly as how she says you were undressing with her. She goes into great detail as to how much she undressed her with her eyes in a way that I was just like, this is a weird way for two characters to meet each other, but okay. <laughs> Yeah, she's like, she's like, you undressed me from like head to toe, and I liked it. Yeah, well, you know what? Maybe she's projecting. No, <laughs> maybe she's undressing Paul Sand with her eyes. I undressed you to your ankle socks, and I liked what I saw. <laughs> uh, I, I imagine a very, a very fuzzy man is what I'm imagining. At any rate, they end up going out. They they party till sunrise, and he brings her back to her compartment. At which point, of course, the goons are waiting inside to kidnap her, and it becomes this it. It's this thing this this show keeps toying with is they almost go with a Hitchcockian thriller where he shows up the next day to take her to lunch and there's different people in the compartment. And no matter who he asks, like there's no record of, of this alley princess, this alley woman on the train. Super Train's never heard of her. Like it's this idea that just like she's just disappeared like she never existed. And I thought that was actually there was a... Um... A chance of something interesting there if they had because they set it up really early which i liked which is this idea that you know you've seen it before in in books and movies and tv of the main character you know we know they're not crazy but everything else around them is indicating that and there could have been something there of him going wait a minute none of the records show her existing all this stuff but i just had this wonderful night with her i know she's real and it's going to be 
him unraveling this conspiracy. But that's not what this episode is. No, that's just the tease. It does lead to my favorite, my favorite moment with my favorite character on Super Train, Boone the Porter, where he he asks Boone, "Is like, have you seen this woman?" He's just like, "I don't have an, I don't have a mind for faces, but I got a great brain for luggage." You tell me, you tell me what kind of luggage she had, I'll tell you where she is. And I was like, "Oh, Boone." I remember thinking it when he said that line. I was like, "That sounds like a plot point if I've ever heard one." <laughs> um. It, it is kind of amazing. We don't really... She is basically taken out of the episode for the most part. She'll be tied up for the rest of it. She's there with her own bodyguards and, like, the goons who... The only featured goon is, like, an old man named Milton who just, like, made me laugh that there's this old guy named Milton. But one of their bodyguards is immediately killed by Milton. And then they tie up the other one. At some point in mid-episode, he escapes his bonds, attacks one of the bodyguards, and as he's going to kill the second one, he just drops dead of a heart attack in the middle of the scene and it's just like, well, I'm glad uh, I'm glad we uh, finished off that bodyguard, too. And I was just like, that was a weird thing to happen. I thought it was going to be that he fainted, but he actually did. He he died of a heart attack. It seems to me that entire purpose was there so they can do a weekend at Bernie scene where the goons now, like, transport his body through the corridors as if he's drunk. Yeah, that didn't work. That 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 moment didn't work. It was very weird. And I guess it was just so that... It's because what happens is who sees them moving this body is Paul Sand. And then Paul Sand goes to, he finds the body, has a big screaming fit in the baggage car, tries to tell Super Train, but the goons are onto it. So by the time Super Train staff get there, there's no body and Paul Sand just looks crazier than he ever did before. And that's the first appearance of Noonan, I think, in a couple episodes. Like, because in the pilot, he was given this whole plot line of that he's like sort of a horn dog. And, uh, uh, I mean, that was really the extent to his character. And he's sort of being, like, once they did that, they're like, all right, he's on the train. And he hasn't been in it for like a couple episodes. Now he showed up. He's like, hey, I'm here, guys, still. Don't worry. I'm a main, I'm a main recurring character. Well, I, if I recall correctly, and it, these are the only two episodes I've rewatched recently, but I don't think he shows up for the rest of the show. And oh, wow. it's part of this um, because they retooled the cast partly through production mm. a couple of times. So um, this was the third one in production order. So during mm. that episode, well, what we saw as episode four, uh, but was actually fifth in production order, he had already been removed. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, that's no, I, I can see why. He hasn't really been working on this show as a character. <laughs> the network had invested so much into the actual model train that they were sort of desperate to not have it be a flop. Like this was, hmm. the, the train was like half the budget right there. So they couldn't afford to like let this show go to a, go to a seed basically. Oh yeah. I mean, when it eventually did, I, I seem to recall it almost ended. Almost and, bankrupt NBC. Uh, yeah. Almost ended them. That's crazy. Yeah. They, they invested so much into, I can't remember. I read it something as well. I'd have to, uh, refresh my memory i think they had done this and some other bad deal and they had put so much money and they were so sure of it that they were like don't worry we're gonna bet on this we're gonna put everything on it and it it tanks and they're now out millions and millions of dollars which at the time you know you can only uh, exponentially show how much larger that would have been in today's dollars yeah it's it's crazy i mean and, and unfortunately for this episode too like once she's missing and he's trying to find her that really spins its wheels like he'll bump into a, a reporter friend of his who's on the train uh Flexner, otherwise known as Flex, great name for a character, but uh, he's the only one who believes uh, our, our our hero Barney Paul Sand about all of this, and they sort of agree that like they'll write a story together about it and then like track her down, and in exchange for that, 
this reporter is going to reach out to his home office and he's basically going to have his own office do research about the train. And he, this is how they discover all the stuff about the princess and the prime minister and the illegitimate child, like the missing, because he calls his home office and then they just call back a bunch of exposition about what's happening. And this just leads to Barney trying to break into a, a compartment, getting caught by the bad guys. And the bad guys have the opportunity now. Like they've caught him. They have a gun on him. And I'm like, oh, well, they should just kill him. But all they do is call the staff of the super train to have him thrown off in Denver. Just, I guess, because the plot needs to continue and they've written themselves into a corner. And from there, the, the staff is like, we're going to lock you in your compartment and you're getting tossed off in, in, in Denver. And I'm just like, okay, well, now he has to like find a way of like getting out of his locked room to do this. Except the next scene is he just walks out of his room. They're taking no care to watch him. And he not only walks out of his room, he walks over to Boone, who just locked him in the room and says, hey, I noticed some luggage. Do you know which room the luggage is in? And Boone tells him a new room to go to. And I was just like, there, it's this middle point where they, they, they are like, we don't know what to do here. So we spin our wheels and have him get in a couple more tr- trouble. And like we try to raise the stakes, but none of it matters. Well, you mentioned an interesting point because I think you know, even in these two episodes, and I think it's been at least three or four of the five episodes, they have goons come on with guns, and that's supposed to be enough of a threat to propel the story forward. But the issue is that you can't really have the goons pull their guns out because then they give themselves up. So it isn't really a threat. So the shows has to keep always find a way for them not to pull the guns out and shoot people. I think in the pilot, the way they got around it is, they had a fight outside on the outside of the train so a person could shoot a gun and stuff. But it becomes this funny thing where, like, it's just painfully obvious in this episode where the goons pull out guns and like, well, we're not going to use them, though. But just so you know, there's a threat. And it's like, okay, but it's not a threat because immediately he just leaves, right? So it's like, it just is a, it's a funny thing that they is, I think, easily work around. You can work around it, but just by, have a different, have a different villain. Have have it be something, I don't know, train related. <laughs> You know, it's the middle ground of these episodes where they always have trouble. Like they just don't have enough plot turns to keep it going, so you end up spinning your wheels. And at this point, once he's like under house arrest, but doesn't matter, he's able to find out where she is. He does finally break her out. They escape to hide in Flex's room, and Flex then goes to call the cops to meet them in Denver. But of course, the episode's not done. They need one more turn. So for whatever reason, off screen, Flex also went by to get the dictaphone from Barney's room, which means that. Flex brings the goons back to his room. They're caught once more, except in the wildest piece that has been a running thing of this episode is that Felix is moving, Flex, sorry, is moving from New York to LA because he's been moved to a new desk by his like editor or whatever. And his staff gave him a bunch of going away presents. So his entire compartment is just filled with junk. One of those pieces of junk, which is introduced early on, is a 12-person inflatable raft Mm-hmm. which is just sitting on the floor of his room. And I remember when they said this, I remember thinking, this is either a plot point or the weirdest bit of uh, time-wasting I've ever seen in a television show, where he just stops and is like, hey, look at that. People gave me a going-away present. It's a gigantic raft. I hope it doesn't open up in this room. And you're like, uh, oh, uh, okay. And then like you need to track that later on. I'm like, but you will track it because it's so bizarre. It's such a bizarre thing to have mentioned. It's a principle called Chekhov's inflatable raft. Uh, if there's <laughs> yeah, an exactly. uninflated raft <laughs> in the first act, it's going to be inflated at the worst moment in the third act, right? Absolutely. And I mean, that's what, like, we get a comedy scene where the raft inflates and, like, forces the goons to a corner. They're able to escape. 
They're arriving in Denver. They come out and like the super train staff is waiting for them. And, and basically uh, this Barney character is like, you see, I told you goons were after me, which allows the big bodybuilder character to go and like smash two goons heads together like a joke. Like like a classic, like, bang their heads together, they're knocked out, and I'm just like, okay. And it has a weird... I thought the episode was over now. Like, they're in Denver, the bad guys are caught, and we just have this extra tag at the end where there's a bittersweet moment about Barney can't stay with the princess because the princess has to go be the queen, so their relationship has to end here. It's like this bittersweet moment where they're both sorry to see each other go. They part ways, Barney goes to get a drink at the bar, and then this Alley princess character comes in, and she says, hey, I've got news. And they fill in this huge piece of additional information where she's just like, when I was smuggled out of Montenegro by the servants of my parents, they also had a daughter and I was raised as her sister. But it turns out their child was really the princess all along and they lied on our birth certificates to make me the princess to hide the real princess. So it turns out my my stepsister is the real princess and i am just a servant's daughter so she she's like so i'm not a princess and then she proposes to barney in the bar car yeah i mean it all it all checks out i i think it's interesting to note that in this universe princessness or legitimacy of monarchy is actually a testable matter like there is a scientific rigorous mm-hmm. uh definition of what monarchy is and some people have it and some people don't. Well, what what it is is they put cutlery out on the table and you have to make sure you pull out the right fork. And if you don't, you're not queen material, you know? That is a good question. What was that test? <laughs> yeah, it's an oddly monarchist view of, of the world, like that there's something inherent to someone. I, I was surprised this whole time. I was just like, are they, is this whole episode proposing that a democratic government should be should be removed if you can find the princess who's still alive. I like what does that say about the United States? Is there somewhere some like kid in Brooklyn who, if we could just find her, would be the queen of of the USA? I mean, I think there's an inherent. I, I you know, you've seen it in lots of stories of uh, you know the person who comes from uh, you know bad situation finds out they're the chosen one, and they have this adventure, and they find out they actually are important. They didn't think they were. You know, you've seen this time and time again, but it's not really what this episode's doing. They just sort of jam that in the end, and and in, it's actually like an, a weird inversion where she's like, oh, by the way, remember how you thought I was special? I'm not. And the reason I'm not special is so we can get married, you nebbish guy. And you're like, what? What was the point of this episode? And 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 then the credits roll and uh, you look for like a rickety chair and strong rope, you know? And yet this is still the best episode of the series. <laughs> well, according like, to fans, I don't know if it's the best episode. Oh, I kind of think it is. Do you think so? Yeah. You didn't like the, who was it? It was um, the second episode with what's his name? Uh Dick Van Dyke. You didn't like the Dick Van Dyke. You know, episode? it's been a long time since I watched that one. Um, I think that was better than this. Yeah, Dick Van Dyke. Dick Van Dyke was it's pretty good. Let me that just one say is this. Pretty Dick good. Van Dyke was in a bathing suit. He did take a so, shirt off. So you know, case closed. And you, you had Marshall Boyd on for that one, right? We did. We did. We had a very nice time. Um, Olive, I know you need to go. You're you you're preparing for a trip, and you've got some things you need to do. Do you have any final thoughts you want to give us on Super Train before you? We can wrap the rest of it up without you. But if there's any final stuff you want to talk about, now is probably the time to do it. I think I got to my main talking points that this is a prequel to Snowpiercer. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
I had a question for you maybe then. I, you were talking about Westlake as a novelist. I'm very curious as to, like, I don't know Westlake. Like, what kind of novels was he writing in comparison to Super Train? Uh, he wrote a bunch of really good detective novels. He, like, yeah. I, I think he wrote, like, 100 novels. Uh, Stephen King actually uh, picked his pen name, Richard Bachman, uh, is partially named for Bachman Turner Overdrive, but the first name Richard was after the most famous protagonist from a Donald Westlake novel. But Westlake also wrote a bunch of sci-fi. Um, mm. he, he won the Edgar Award, I think, three times. Like, the guy was prolific and well-liked and wrote a bunch of be- best-selling detective novels. He wrote some really, really great books under the pseudonym Richard Stark. Yes. He wrote, like, The Hunter and a lot of those novels, and they're really, really great. Like, he was just one of those writers who... You know those people who like he just it was that it, Stephen King esque sort of like I could just keep putting them out, but they were all really like fun kind of hard boiled novels. You know those kind of novelists who are like you need you to write a science fiction book. He's like, yep, I need you to write a western. Yep, like he just you know was one of those writers. Right, right. So I guess this isn't a labor of love for him. He was just like, hey, great, this is a great paycheck I can get with this super. Probably. Draft. I'm assuming I I'm assuming he wrote like the first draft, and they're like, hey, how do we add in Paul Sands? Do you remember uh, the Grifters? That uh, 1990, um, mm-hmm. yeah, that that was one of his. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. I mean, it it's puts puts such a spin of pedigree onto this show that I would never have guessed. <laughs> oh yeah, they 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 got some really talented people together and told them to make the least interesting TV show possible. You know what though, mission accomplished. Which, which is a project. <laughs> That's. I mean, if you put it that way, then this show is like nailing on every beat it wants. <laughs> like it's it's a total success. Well, thanks for having me on. No worries. Thanks for coming on, Olaf. I really appreciate it. Thanks for thanks for squeezing us in today. Have a good flight. Okay. Thanks. Cheers. All right, Jordan. Well, let's wrap up this episode. And the good thing about this, as uh, this is the first time we've had a guest who's like literally running to a plane, and it was nice that he took the time to do this. But he also gave us his scores, so we'll have to ha- we can have an actual authentic appropriate score for the show it's absolutely true we did we did we we still have a score so when we do ratings it'll be all good mm-hmm. i i did i did feel bad because uh i you know i don't i don't think olov's super familiar with this program this, this is the program right that's what we call the podcast the program yeah, yeah this, that, that's right yes and i don't realize i don't think he realizes we're about to test the escape pod today <laughs> yeah i know i know he was excited for us to um uh to keep watching but i don't i don't know uh you know i feel uh, more optimistic that we'll be taping, taking the escape pod than not. I, Olav, I, if you're listening to this after you've left the show, I apologize, but uh, we're going to fire up the escape pod and see if we're leaving. Um, but rest assured, no, we're not firing up the escape e- pod. We're firing up the uh, the, co- the test, the, the computer. computer. Yeah, what do you call to it? To see. <laughs> um, but rest assured, even if we do use it, there'll be one more episode. We'll come back and watch the finale and see where this ended up. If we escape. maybe with a laugh track, maybe with a laugh track. I, I mean, couldn't hurt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In that case, then, shall we do these ratings, George? Yeah, let's do it. Not to tip our hands as to how I think this is about well, to go. I mean, but... No, I mean, we, we look, th- this show is, I, I said it before, and this will work into my rating. It's shocking how bad this show has gotten. And from a show that was already not very good to begin with, these two episodes are putrid. That's what I think. I mean, here's the thing. is It's very funny. Like, that pilot episode was hot garbage. Like, it was so <laughs> bad. Yeah, it was, yeah. But but part of that could be it was so long. 
No, I mean, and I think that was the case. Once it was over, I was like, I was like, if this was shorter, it probably would have been manageable. And then we came back. We did another episode where we watched two episodes that were like one of them I enjoyed. And yeah. the second one, like with the po- with the politician, I was like, this isn't terrible. Like, it's kind of fun. Like, I felt like it was fresh material while mm. still treading to the similar ground. And then we come back to these two episodes, which are nearly identical plots, just with different tones to it. One's mm-hmm. a comedy. One's a drama. Yeah. So episode four. I'm going to give it a 1 out of 10. I thought it was one of the worst episodes of television I've seen in a long time. I hated it. I actually timed. I stopped and paused it and found other things to do three times in the first two and a half minutes of the episode. I will. I, here's what I'm thinking on it is I said it earlier and I, we didn't talk about them a ton, but those two goons were the only like high point for me. Those, those mm-hmm. two goons who were, for whatever reason, a comedy duo in it. And... One of them was laughing at an old lady about to get hit. And then the other one had this weird scene where they go to the gift shop. He gives a monologue about a teddy bear he once had. That's right. Then they walk out and the camera just like pushes in on the woman who works at the gift shop. She's just like folding clothes on on the thing. And then the camera turns and his face is pressed up against the glass next to the gift shop. And he's like, have a nice day. And then he walks away (laughs) apropos to nothing. And I was just like. Who are these goons? I'm giving it one point for each of those goons. That's two. That's all this episode gets. All right. Okay. So that's the first episode. What about Olav? That's the question. Oh, sorry. You're right. Olav gives, which episode is this called Superstar? Olav is uh, uh, actually right around where we're at. He gives it a two out of 10. I know. He also, he also is sitting there with a two out of 10. I was, uh, so we're, we're feeling, I think we all felt fairly similar about this. And that of course brings us to the final episode, the queen and the improbable knight. Um, uh, another train-based kidnapping. Yeah, I, as you said, I think it's essentially the same episode. It's weirdly more boring, but a better episode in most the most marginal ways. I'm honestly, I'm going to give it a 2 out of 10. It's only marginally better, but in some ways I liked it less because... Less was happening. I don't know. I just, it's it's so dumb and so much is jammed into the beginning and the end of the convoluted plot. And then they have to solve it in the dumbest ways that no one cares about. And I just, I hated it. It's two to 10. Yeah. I mean, I also feel very similar. Like it, there's one interesting goon in this one, Milton, but he's even not used to full effect. At just one point, they're just like, you're too old to be a goon anymore. He's like, oh yeah, watch me kill a man. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> but he barely is utilized. And then, it was, I think, a better constructed episode for sure. Yeah. But complexness of the missing queen of Montenegro, Princess of Montenegro, who could be queen, who just needs to take a test in Denver, was so complicated. And then the sudden reveal at the end where she shows up and explains, well, it turns out I'm actually the servant's daughter and my parents lied to me and told me I was the princess to act as some sort of decoy so that any people who wanted to kill the princess would kill me instead and the princess could get here unharmed. Like the entire that entire bizarre reveal at the end so that that she could then propose to a man she's talked to for less than 12 hours and i like the thing about the reveal is we never saw the other woman it's not like there's a hot second for like for a a fraction but what my point is it's not like 
that both women get on the train at the beginning and then you find out of these two characters you've learned all this information about it's actually the opposite they just were like hey remember those later we saw her for about three seconds as she walked by she's the she's the princess yeah like there's a there's a half second scene right at the end where she where ali walks in to do the princess test and then this other woman walks in and she's like oh my sister what are you doing here hard cut <laughs> and then she's walking into the bar car being like it turns out i'm not a princess i was lied to uh and oh, used man. as a decoy <laughs> Oh, it's so Do you bad. want to get married? We just met. <laughs> so what do you give that episode? I, I give it a one. I'm I'm doing the opposite. I, I I felt I felt more betrayed by that mm. episode than anything. Yeah. And as Olaf has said repeatedly, he thinks it's the best episode of the series. So I was very interested to see what he, where his rating was gonna fall out of ten on this. Of only falling out of four. <laughs> yeah, he what his note was to us was four to ten, the best episode of the show. <laughs> wild oh just i mean and that just speaks to the show itself it's it's for a brief shining moment i thought it might like survive as like a middling fun show mm-hmm. when we saw the dick van dyke episode and it just like this is such a hard turn back to the pilot's territory although worse than the pilot and that like not even cutting it down to an hour can save these episodes like these are not even a half hour of, of, like, you're right though information. for for, for a, a brief moment and it was maybe just that dick van dyke episode we thought Oh, I'm going to get what this show is. It's kind of a uh, a very light mystery, sort of uh, very light thriller going to happening. You're going to have a fun guest star from the 70s that show up that you know and like. And that will be enough charisma uh, to take you through the episode. But then, like, maybe if you're a big Paul Sands fan, but I don't know who he is. And for my money, he's not charismatic enough to to save this episode. Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely not. I, I He's no I Dick do- Van Dyke. Yeah, absolutely. I do agree in some ways with uh, <laughs> with Olaf that like he's an interesting actor. I just I don't I don't think the plot gave him enough to do for me to like really be won over to him. As a... I didn't I didn't think so. I didn't I thought it was the least believable thing of everything in this episode was that that woman would want him. <laughs> oh, I know, right? It was it at no point did I ever believe that would could possibly be true. Yeah. At any rate, Jordan, should I fire up the uh, the the computer and we'll just see where we are in the old ratings and if that's yeah. if if the escape pod's I mean, coming coming out? If we're not taking the escape pod, I'll be blown away. There's no way these scores are high enough. I it's it truly truly uh would be hard to believe. So let me let, let's fire it up and I'll punch him in. I'm putting on my seatbelt. I'm uh don't don't we have special underwear? We have we put on special underwear to make sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, socks? I believe you. I believe you tried to add that as canon at some point. Yeah, there's compression socks and underwear. <laughs> there's just compression to keep our uh, varicose veins in place. It's to it's to make sure we don't have any. Uh, yeah, we don't have any uh, uh, aneurysms. I don't know what the compression socks are supposed to do. All right, Jordan. I've got I've got the numbers now. We've punched them in. So. Uh, with with this week's ratings, and even with the better standing last week, the, the current series average for Super Train is 4.02. That's it. Let's take off. We're taking this escape pod. We're, uh, oh, love, I'm so sorry. We're going to miss episodes 6, 7, and 8, I believe, are the ones we're going to miss. Because there's only nine episodes in this Luke, bad boy. Luke, we are not going to miss them, am I right? We're, well, we're not going to miss them. <laughs> 
if I'm not mistaken, there are only nine episodes on this show. Mm-hmm. So that means we're going to hop ahead. We're going to fast forward and watch the series finale of Old Super Train and sort of see how it wraps up. I'm excited a little bit now that I've been told via Olaf that we're we're basically hop jumping ship at the retool stage. <laughs> Well, it's funny. Usually when we're at this these point, I, I feel a little bittersweet because, you know, I, I like being a completist. I like watching these things, uh, even if they're terrible, but I don't feel bad at all about this show. Like, I don't want to, I don't, honestly, I don't even want to see the retool. I don't want to watch any more of the show. I hate it. I'm just excited now to pop forward to the end and there'll be a whole new cast of Super Train characters after they <laughs> fired everybody and we're not going to know anybody anymore. It's going to be great. What I hope is that a lot of things have happened narratively like Boone is now the uh, conductor and I'm like, when did that happen? He got a promotion? It'd be great if we just go forward. It's now the year 2040. <laughs> Boone's ahead in a jar and it's a completely different show. Well, time will tell, but we're off to episode nine wrapping this, this uh, stinker up. We'll find out next week. Full steam ahead, am I right? Full steam ahead. Sorry, Super Train. You're out of here. You're not even science fiction. Why are we watching you? <laughs> Full Adam steam ahead. Yeah. Why are we watching you? Yeah. I, that's that's still... We have to figure that out still. Well, uh, you guys, if you enjoyed Olaf, you joined... He's he's clearly very, very like good at looking into the backgrounds of these things. And he runs a great blog about the Hugos. I mean, he was off to a, to a big science fiction convention. That's where he's running off to right now. You can find him at Hugo book club blog that's his blog online you can google that he's also on twitter very active lots of lots of stuff there so you can find him and get more information on everything he's doing there i think you'll i think you'll enjoy what he does he's got a nice beard got a great beard you couldn't see it top-notch beard (laughs) (laughs) and i believe that wraps it up for this episode so listener you can email us continuum drag at gmail.com if you uh, have anything you want to say to us and, of course, on Instagram and Twitter, we're going to have some clips from this show. Uh, there's still some good clips. People falling onto trains from uh, from the top of from the side of a building or bridges. In five-second increments, this is a great show. We, we didn't have a chance to talk about it as much as we usually do, but him falling off that bridge because a <laughs> cop tries to stop him from committing suicide and just pushes him off a bridge is insane. This show's insane. Yeah, it got, it got real broad real quick. All right. Well, Jordan... I'll see you next week, uh, and uh, listeners, also next week. I forgot how I sign this off. Bye, everybody. See you later. Continuum Drag is recorded in Toronto, Ontario. Theme music by James Rex Seedler, produced by Jordan Dulloch and Luke Black. Special thanks to Aaron Hughes.